Well, like Bryce said, it's good to see so many new people here. Um, and I know I've introduced myself once this morning. Uh, but if you don't know me, my name's Tanner. Um, really glad, glad to have everyone here. And we're going to continue our series this morning um, in the book of Genesis. And so if you got your Bible or a scripture journal, you can get to chapter 14. Um, but before that, I just want to share just some stuff that's been going on um, in our house. So recently, uh, we've, been, we've been watching a lot of the NBA playoffs um, in our house. I don't know if that's a popular thing around here, but I love it. And so it's one of my favorite times of the year. Um, and it's a lot more fun for me now that I've got someone else in my family that asked to turn the game on, and it's not just me um, controlling the screen the whole time. Um, but one of, the, one of the funny things to me as we started watching um, was that Jace, no matter what game we turned on, his favorite team was always on the screen. He, he loved the whistle mans. And every time I had to explain to him that the referees aren't always on the screen because they're not the reason that we watch the game. It's like, son, it's the best thing if you can watch the game and not even know that there are referees there. And so I had that conversation several times. And by divine revelation, he's finally got a new team, the Oklahoma City Thunder. Um, no, I'm kidding. But he does like the Thunder, which makes, makes this a proud dad. Um, but I, I thought that it would never be something that I'd have to explain to someone, that hey, we, the referees are not the, the main people here. But as I got into Genesis 14, I realized that Jace was experiencing a similar thing, similar phenomena that, that, that I experienced, that we experienced. Um, and what, what I mean is that it's easy for us to forget or to not even know who the main character is in our story. And I, I say that both in the grand story of human history and even in our individual day-to-day -day lives, it's easy for us to forget. So as we continue in Genesis, it'll be, it'll be helpful to remember uh, what's happened in the chapters leading up. And if you haven't been here, I'd encourage you to go check those sermons out on our, on our website. Um, but I'll give a, a high-level high level overview. So just jumping back a couple, couple chapters to Genesis 12, uh, we see that God promised Abram to make him a great nation, uh, to bless him, and to make Abram's name great. And so Genesis 13, uh, we start to see that God is making good on that promise, that, that Abram becomes very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. Uh, so much so that Abram and his nephew Lot, they just have too much stuff in one spot. So like, okay, we need to split this up. So Abram gives Lot, Lot the choice. He's like, where do you want to go? You get the choice. I'll just take whatever is left over. And so Lot, Lot chooses his share, and then he has no regard for Abram, which brings us to the, the story of Genesis 14 here, where several years have passed by, and a battle broke out in the Valley of Siddim. And so four kings from Babylon wage war against five kings who were under the Babylonian empire, but they rebelled against Babylon. And so battle breaks out. And the side with four kings won and took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is part of the losing side. And so if you remember from chapter 13, that includes Lot and all of his possessions. And so one guy happened to escape from the battle. He made it all the way to Abram, told him the story of what happened. 
um, tells him, you know, hey, your, your nephew's in trouble. He just got, he just got captured. And so Abram assembles um, 318 trained men, and they went to rescue his nephew. Abram rescues Lot in a decisive victory, bringing back all of Lot's possessions and all the people who are with him. And so some, some of this, if you're tracking with the story, it should sound a little like, okay, I get that it's true because we, we read it in the Bible, but like, are you sure that just 318 men who just like watch their sheep all day and all this stuff can really defeat armies who we've seen are victorious in battle. And so Tim and I were talking about it last week, and we actually have pictures on the screen here. Um, but there's a banner from Abram's hometown that people have dug up. And if you look... So I think this is actually, so this is the the backside of it here. It's these people in chariots during wartime. And if you, if you zoom in and you look, which we can't do it on here, but if you see it, like they're just trampling people with their horses, they're defeating, they're victorious in battle. And then on that same banner, on the flip side, it's the same people in times of peace. And you'll see the livestock and the sheep in all of these things that are mentioned in Genesis 14. So it doesn't give us like a play-by-play of what actually happened in the battle and how they, how they won, but it does give us a reasonable like, confirmation. It's like, oh yeah, this is, this is what happened in that time period. Um, and this seems to line up uh, with what, what Genesis 14 is telling us. And so if you want to look more into this, uh, this picture I actually got from the, the Bible map app. So just in the app store, and it's got a lot of just different information about how, how we have this, where it's at in the world right now. And also, you can click through there and see all the different locations and, and all these things that are mentioned in chapter 14 as well. I found it really helpful this week. And so with that, there's also a strong argument that here, at, after this battle, it's the, the pinnacle of Abram's earthly success. So Genesis 13 tells us of Abram's growing, growing greatness kind of locally, like within his own people and his family and the people he has authority over. In chapter 14, it has him step into the international spotlight in a really big way. And so of the 10 kings and leaders mentioned in the battles in this chapter, Abram is the last one standing. He leads 318 men to defeat the four victorious Babylonian kings. And so we see God is, is really making his name, Abram's name great. And so what, what does Abram do from here? I'm going to read, starting in verse 17 for us. It says, After his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, so he is part of the losing, the losing side, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, Abram, at the valley of Sheva. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So we see that Abram wins, wins the battle, and he's on his way back home, and he gets to, he, he heads over to the king's valley. This is just a place where kings meet together, uh, where they where they counsel one another, where they discuss important kingly ideas, 
And so if we're paying attention at all in what happens in those three verses that we just read, something or some things uh, should feel a little bit out of place in this encounter. So from what we've read, Abram, he should be the guy. He should be the one being celebrated. He should be the one at the head of the table. He should be the one running this meeting in the King's Valley. And we should, so we should rightfully question at least a couple of things. First thing I think is fair to ask is who is Melchizedek? Who is this guy that just shows up? So in my opinion, this is one of the, one of the most fascinating people in the entire Bible. He shows up in five different chapters throughout the Old and New Testament. First, here in Genesis 14, we also see David mention him in Psalm 110. Then he's mentioned in three consecutive chapters in, in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, uh, 5, 6, and 7. And so it's no secret that the New Testament connects Jesus to Melchizedek, so Melchizedek to Jesus in some way. And Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So the whole structure of Genesis is genealogies. Like, it's originally given to, to God's people who just exited out of Egypt, who've been told for, for centuries of how worthless they are by the Egyptians. And so God delivers the book of Genesis in part to give them a new identity, to remind them of who they are and who he says that they are. And he does that by just telling their story and say, hey, this is where you came from. This is what I've done in your people, this is what I've done to my people, this, these are the things that have got you to this point. So even going back to, to Genesis 3, like all these genealogies are answering the question of, of like, who is going to be the offspring that crushes the serpent's head that's promised by God? And then the, the whole book, all about whose dad is whose, who, who belongs to who, what are the family lines here? And when we get to Melchizedek, we should start having these questions pop up. He's like, he's not mentioned in any family tree, but he abruptly bursts onto the scene and steals the show. And so Hebrews chapter 7 picks up on what's not here. It says that Melchizedek, he, he has no mother, he has no father, it says he has no burial place. He has no beginning of days or end of days. Uh, we have no record of him being born, only of him existing. Uh, we have no record of him dying. In Hebrews chapter 7, actually, he says that he continues a priest forever. So there's no genealogy in a book full of genealogies. And Melchizedek, he may have been born and he probably died, like physically, but the author of Hebrews is saying that Genesis 14 intentionally leaves those parts out of the story to make an emphasis in the story, to something to grab our attention. This is not normal. And so, second question I think is fair to ask is like, where where does this guy come from? Like, where does Melchizedek live? And so we're told that he lives. He's a king of Salem, the city of peace. So the king's valley is just outside of where Jerusalem is now. Um, so it's reasonable to assume that this man is, is from the city that would one day be called Jerusalem. Um, the city Salem, so the city of Shalom, the city of peace. And lastly, a, a third question that I think is, is fair to consider is what, what is, like, what is he? 
And Melchizedek literally translates to king of righteousness. He's also the only priest king in the entire Old Testament. So every, every other person with one of those titles, so a priest or a king, they only have one or the other. Melchizedek is the only one that has both. He's a priest king. And so a king's job, uh, just some, just some high-level stuff, a king's job was to represent God to his people, uh, to provide protection for his people and his land, uh, to bring justice to and for his people. Uh, a priest role description includes um, like compassion and mercy. So you can think of like taking care of the poor. Uh, you're res- responsible for teaching the law. He offered sacrifices. And he brought people's repentance to God and king. And the priests were the primary mediators between God and his people. And so outside of Melchizedek, like I said, these two offices were totally separate in the Old Testament. However, Genesis 14 starts to plant the seed. It's like, but could, could there be one who's, who's both priest and king? Could there be one who destroys evil and brings justice while also full of mercy and compassion as he represents his people to the king? And so just to, just to recap some of the, the important things on Melchizedek, his name is Righteousness. Number two, he's a king of the city of peace. And three, he has no beginning or no end. So hopefully we're starting to connect some of these dots. And if not, um, that's okay. Just hang, hang with me for a moment. And so, so we've, we've answered. We spent some time laying the foundation, asking some important questions about Melchizedek and who he is. But what happens with Abram? So remember, he's, he's a guy. I know you guys didn't forget, but he's a guy exercising his God-given greatness. He's the, the high-achieving. He's spontaneous, yet goal-setting uh, savant. He's a military mastermind. He's a business genius. There's probably several other things that we could categorize him as, and he's like the top of his class in all of those areas. And even more than that, Abram is at at the peak of his powers. And even, even he is totally outclassed here. So straight off of his career-defining performance... So if you guys will allow me to indulge in some, some of my NBA fandom for a second. If uh, this would be like M- MJ, so Michael Jordan dropping 63 points on the road in his first playoff series in the Boston Garden against one of his, one of the best generational teams of that era. I know that goes over a lot of heads. And it breaks down a little bit because he actually lost that game. And so Abram won the battle, so it's kind of hard. And so another example I know I might be the one of only a handful of people who appreciates these, so this is the last one, I promise. Uh, <laughs> you could think about 2007 when young LeBron went into Detroit in the Palace and dropped 25 straight um, to close out game five of the Eastern Conference Finals. And you just imagine him, after that performance, stepping to the, to the post-game press conference, and he's not the guy getting asked the questions. He's not the guy in the spotlight. And that, I think, is very similar to what's happened with Abram here. He's the guy. He steps into the King's Valley with Melchizedek, and he's totally in the background. And I think, I think that's the point. 
Because if you look at it, Melchizedek, as far as we know, from reading Genesis 14, he hasn't done anything. Abram has destroyed multiple armies, multiple kings, and he shows up and should be the guy. Melchizedek, not a, not a thing. They show up at the same table, and Abram willfully and humbly steps into the background and worships Melchizedek. And so he does that. And remember that God, God is using Genesis to give his people a, a soul-level identity here. He, he's giving a gentle yet very abrupt, very not-so-gentle reminder. He's like, hey, I know I've let you do great things. Um, I'm making your name great. Just don't forget, I'm the one who made these promises for you. I'm the one who your identity is founded in. I'm the one who created you, and I'm the one that's going to fulfill my promises. The burden's not on your shoulder. It's squarely on God's shoulders. God, God is taking complete, complete ownership of that. And we see that because Abram does these great things, and he is totally upstaged by verses 18, 19, and 20. Melchizedek is random. He's strange. He doesn't fit. And so what exactly, what exactly do we do with this? How do, how do we reconcile these stories with these verses? So I got two questions I think that will be helpful to consider, questions that hopefully let us go below the line and um, tap into our hearts a little bit. So first, why, why does this even matter? Like, sure, this could be a cool story from a long time ago, but why, why do I care about this today? So first, I think it's evident that there's a king above all earthly kings. Uh, we, could, we could pretend that we live in some sort of fantasy land that, um, that boasts nothing but good and virtuous leaders, um, even from like a, a global perspective. So think about like kings, prime ministers, presidents, even down to our very household units, um, where we could just naively think that all, all dads are good and virtuous and provide and protect for their families. And it's, we could do that. The good news of this strange encounter would be that we still have a better king reigning and ruling over every king. A king who on our best day we could only emulate a percentage of. And that would bring us great joy. A king who's 100% good to the core. A king who's making all things new and beautiful and perfect forever. That's right. That's right. And on the other hand, there's some examples that are easier to notice in today's reality. Regardless of how chaotic society gets, regardless of how polarizing our political system is, regardless of how corrupt and twisted the people who hold power are, there's a king who stands before all kings and above all kings, and behind all kings, and that is a king not by birthright or bloodline. There's a king who stands above all and beyond all, and he stands in the succession, so he stands in the order of Melchizedek. He's first. And that's what, that's what Melchizedek, I think, is trying to communicate to us here. And that should bring us great peace in the present, and also give us 
a great joy as we look forward. So corrupt kings, they don't have the final say on our lives. Um, Whatever influence they have over us now is only true because a true king has given it to them. Our stories aren't controlled by untrustworthy, greedy, abusive, power-hungry kings or abusive dads or bosses or any of that. Our lives are in the hand of a king who knows us and he has compassion for us. So the second, the second question I think is helpful to consider here. What if you're not the leading character? What if you're not the hero? What if you're not the protagonist in your own story? It can be a weird concept. Uh, I'll agree to that. But let's just consider it for a minute. Just like, just like Jace turns on the basketball game and expects to see the referees be center stage. What if, what if you wake up, what if I wake up every day and think your life is all about you? And I'm not discounting our personal responsibility and accountability here, but I ask from a perspective of what if, what if your actions aren't the primary source of your identity? What if, think about, what if there's a greater king driving the storyline of your life? Like Abram, you could think you're on top of the world, but when he met the priest king, he worshipped him and honored him, and he actually gave a tenth of everything that he had. And you got to remember, this was hundreds of years before, like the priesthood was actually installed and tithing was installed in the Old Testament. There was something about Melchizedek that he, that Abram noticed, and he had no, no choice but to but to lay down his things in honor and worship him. And so he realized his place in the story. He didn't, he didn't bring out his resume or assemble the guys for another battle. Uh, he actually cleared his schedule and dined with the king at his table. And in a beautiful way, this wasn't, this wasn't about Abram, or it wasn't to Abram's detriment. In his story, you see that it actually brings him great joy and great satisfaction to do this. He humbly submitted and found great joy in a great king. And so as true as this is for Abram at the mountaintop of success, I think it's just as beautiful and life-giving for those of us who would identify more like our life is in the valley or we're closer to the floor of the pit than we are to Abram's success at the mountaintop. Those of us who who can't catch a break, those of us always seeming to, to be falling behind, or maybe we just get in our own way and we can't help but get out of it. Maybe it's something that we've personally done, choices that we've made, or maybe it's uh, something that's been done to us that we have to deal with. Uh, whatever it is, some of us would probably admit to being, it's easier for us to relate to that place than it is for us to relate to Abram in his place. But the truth is still the same. If your trust is in Jesus, he is the protagonist of your story. He is the hero. The primary actions that define you are 100% completed in his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus has put, he's literally put all of his cards on the table, and he says, I'm for you. I can't put anything more in front of you than what I've already done. I'm 100% all in for you.
And so if this is if this is you and you don't know you don't know Jesus, whether you're doesn't matter if you're at the mountaintop or the valley or anywhere in between, um, just know that he wants to take he wants to take your burden and be the hero of your story. So Jesus we see is the ultimate priest king. He's the main character of human history and he's the main character of each of our lives still to this day. So this is this is good news because it frees us of of several things. It frees us of our our belief that that we think that we need to play God. We're free to to be humans who change. We're free to be humans who mess up. We're free to be humans who actually need another human to help to invite other people into our lives to be close to us, to be vulnerable with each other because we're not God. We're all growing. We're all growing to be more like God. In this, it's easy for us to to fall into the default mode where we control everything. And this is clearly saying, hey, it's not yours to control. Just be the way that I created you. God created you. And enter in. Be vulnerable. Be honest with people. And so this also is good news because when tragedy strikes, maybe someone we love passes away, maybe we get fired from a job or overlooked for the promotion, uh, maybe our health turns for the worst. Uh, probably easy for us to fill in the blank of, of many of those things. Um, when tragedy strikes, though, the plot isn't lost. It's only made more deep and more beautiful and more true because God is God, and we're not, and he's in control. And so when good things happen, we can rightfully turn those things into worshipful moments. And having Jesus as our life's central figure allows us, or it allows failure to not get to our hearts and crush us, and it also allows success not to get to our heads and puff us up with pride. So we're freed, we're freed to operate in line with our good design. And so through through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus not only, he doesn't only define us, but he invites us to be one with himself. The main, the main character interjects himself into our lives, seemingly out of nowhere. And he does this not to condemn us, but to save us. And in doing so, he makes himself one with us one with those who, who have our trust in Jesus, and he, he literally makes his story our story. So it's wild in the way that he, he does this. Like he connects himself to us so deeply, so intimately, so profoundly, so powerfully that he uses language like, like we are literally his body. His, his spirit resides inside of us. He does. He uses that language, I think, to to say, "I'm not just like going part of the way, but I'm literally all the way in." So much so that that our livelihood and his livelihood are one and the same. And so Hebrews tells us tells us this. This will be on the screen. It says, "Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him." because he always lives to intercede for them. And so as, as he interceded for us in his high priestly prayer, uh, recorded in John 17, this, this is what he said there. He said, 
and this should be on the screen as well, yeah. He said, I do not ask for these only, so talking about the people right next to him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's where we fit into the story. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So being, being one with Jesus, this is only made possible by a priest king. Justice and mercy meet us in the same person. He mediates peace between God and his people, and in his kindness, he leads us to repentance. And in a shocking turn of events, the priest king not only found a, uh, a sacrifice to offer, but he himself offered himself as the sacrifice once and for all so that all who believe in him can find life. And so if my encouragement, my um, just the words that I would, I'd want to leave you with, if, if you want life today, whether that's new life like you've never experienced before, come to Jesus. If you want life in a, a renewed way where it's like, maybe I've been following Jesus for, for quite a while now, but I'm just in a rut and I don't know what to do. I don't know what's next. I don't like, I can't see a way forward. Come to Jesus. And if, if any of that resonates, like, we'll have people up here ready, ready to pray for you, excited to pray for you um, at, the, at the end of the service. But in any way that we're searching for life, my encouragement is, is to come to Jesus to be, to be fully satisfied and to find true joy. So let me pray for us. Lord, we are grateful that, that you have come to us 100%. Lord, you, you laid your life down for us um, so that we could be made right, right with you. Lord, you, you offer us everything that we need. Jesus, we thank you for being the hero of our story, um, for not leaving us on our own to, to find our own way back to you, Lord, but you literally made the way. Lord, would, would you show us what new life looks like in you? Uh, would you show somebody in the room who, who doesn't know you, Lord, what it looks like to know you? Would you, would you show someone in the room who, who knows you but wants to know you in a new and deeper way, Lord, we ask that by your spirit that would, that would be true today. And so, Lord, whatever it is that you have for us, uh, we say yes and amen. Uh, we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, brings us to, to communion. And we see bread and wine were the, were, were the royal food, the royal drink of the day back then. Uh, we see that that's what Melchizedek brought to the table in verse 18. And so I don't, I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus gave the same meal to his followers before he went to the cross. And we get to join in today because of that. And so a royal banquet and celebration of victory offered to, offered to Abram in, in Genesis is the same royal banquet and celebration of victory for us today. So Jesus, the priest king, freely gives us his victory and he can do that because he's alive and well. He freely gives us his victory over sin and death uh, so we can find our beautiful satisfaction in him. And so let's take a moment. Um, if there's work that you need to do with the Lord, 
feel free to do that. If it's in your heart just to rush to the table and in worship and honor to God, I would encourage you to do that as well. Um, but wherever you're at, we'll go through the, the center aisle here. Everyone, get the, get the bread. Uh, Mark and Cindy will serve you. Uh, obey your conscience with the, with the wine or juice. And then you can go back to your seat. We'll stay standing. And then I'll lead us in taking it together as one.